Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. This morning, Mason will be preaching out of Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was, before she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we uh, begin our time of worship and hearing the preached word, I pray, Father, uh, that you would work through Mason, that you speak through Mason for our good and for your glory, uh, that these words from Mark 5 uh, would permeate our souls with gospel truth and that we would be changed more into the likeness of your Son. Father, I pray as we take up the offering in a second, Lord, I pray that we, that we give and that we give freely and graciously, knowing that we have been given all things by you and knowing that we've been given all things by you, for you, for your glory and for the good of others. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we see all of our resources, and not even our resources, but our time and everything about us as a gift for worship. Uh, Father, I pray this service glorifies you, and I thank you for loving us. Amen. Amen. Uh, Res kids, you guys are dismissed to go upstairs. Um, and ushers, you guys are uh, dismissed to come to the center and take up our offering. So, well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's a little nasty out there, but at least it's not freezing. So, uh, I'm glad you made the trek through the elements to come out together with the church this morning. Uh, one announcement I wanted to highlight is Ash Wednesday this week. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to do a little, um, hopefully five minute, uh, maybe six, maybe seven, but hopefully no more than seven and a half, uh, sort of explanation of, of why we're doing it and what you can expect. Because for many of you, um, any sort of liturgical high church sort of-ish tradition uh, spooks you uh, a lot. And um, I, I want to encourage you, and I'm going to talk about why uh, we are, are doing this Ash Wednesday service together and um, why we're doing the things that we're doing. So I'd like to share that at the end of the service. Uh, this morning we are in Mark chapter 5. As Jason eloquently read a moment ago, we're going to be focusing on verses 21 through 43. Uh, but we're going to spend, like I said, the majority of our time in that 21 through 43. I'm going to sort of mention verses 1 through 20, uh, but I'm not going to, to preach it uh, because... I think there is one common thread that weaves its way through the entire chapter, and that one common thread is that everyone Jesus encounters is absolutely incurable. Everyone Jesus encounters is absolutely incurable. The 30,000-foot view of the chapter is simply this, right? Jesus heals a man, uh, Jesus heals a woman, and then Jesus heals a child. The man is possessed. Verse 4 tells us that no one had the strength to subdue him. He walked among the tombs and the mountains, crying out and cutting himself with stones. The woman was not possessed, but she was incurable. She had a discharge of blood that had been affecting her for 12 years, making her uh, very physically ill and kind of putting her outside the boundaries of the religious community of the day. And finally, worst of all, the child is dead. Jesus is going to rid this man of a legion of demons, right? He stops the bleeding for a suffering woman. And most importantly, perhaps, he brings life to a dead body. I'm not sure uh, where you are this morning. I'm not sure where you are in your, your faith journey. If you're a follower of Christ who is uh, in a good season right now of growth, if you're a follower of Christ who feels like you've been wayward for, 
for years and years, or if you're uh, not a follower of Christ and you're just here because maybe you were invited or, or maybe because you're interested in the message of the gospel. Perhaps spiritually, you feel like the enemy, somewhat like our first gentleman, has you in chains. You feel enslaved to habits and desires, and it doesn't feel like you can help yourself, and it certainly doesn't feel like anyone else can help you either. Maybe like our woman in the text today, you are discouraged and hopeless. You are spiritually sick, and nothing has changed it. You've gone from church to church, or perhaps you've come to service after service, and you just feel like nothing is changing in your life anytime soon. Or perhaps, maybe, just like the little girl in our text today, you are dead. Meaning there is no spiritual walk in you to speak of. Meaning you have no affections for God to speak of. Meaning I don't think I'm a Christian. I I don't think I know any of this. And wherever you are, if you're enslaved to sin, if you're discouraged by sin or discouraged by your lack of change, or whether you are just flat out dead, I have good news for you. Jesus sees you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus can do what no one else can. He can heal you. We have abundantly good news this morning, that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and Jesus is the healer of the hurting. So, I think we all have one thing in common. We are all incurable in some way or another. Maybe we feel more enslaved by sinful habits. Maybe we're more discouraged by lack of change. Maybe we're spiritually dead. To a congregation full of incurable people, allow me to preach Christ our cure. Would you join me in a quick prayer over the text? Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for your word that speaks life to us. I pray that uh, you will grow us in these moments up in you, that your spirit will work mightily in us and among us in these minutes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, uh, I'm not going to read the first 20 verses, uh, but you can look with me just very, very briefly uh, in verse 3, Mark chapter 5, verse 3, we meet a man. Um, who was kind of scary, right? Verse 3 says, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. We see this character, this kind of ghastly, ghoulish character uh, at the beginning of the chapter who is way stronger than everyone else. There is a spiritual power at work in this fellow that is dangerous and scary, and he has sort of been exiled from his friends, his family, and his entire community. So he is just wandering through the mountains. Now, Jesus heals him. He sends the demons out of him and into the pigs, and he tells the man to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Then Jesus crosses the water again, and sort of one narrative picks up that we're going to trace through the rest of the chapter. So look with me uh, in verses 21 through 24. Verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and he went with him, period, end of sentence. The verse sentence uh, demarcation uh, messed me up a little bit. I want to sort of look in this sermon, really only going to be three, three parts, or four parts to the sermon. First, I want to look at the woman, right? First, I want to look at this, actually, first I want to look at the situation in verses 21 through 24, the situation. 
So we see, once again, a great crowd has followed Jesus. We see over and over, almost every single week, Mark has sort of different groups of people. One of them's the crowd, one of them's the religious ruler, and one of them is sort of his disciples. First we see Jesus, a great crowd following him, and Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, comes to him. Now, up to this point, the religious leaders have gotten a really bad rap in Mark's gospel, and they will continue to get a really bad rap in Mark's gospel. But Jairus reminds me, I don't know much about Jairus, we don't know much about him historically, but we do know this, right? He comes to Jesus at least with a little bit of faith. He comes to Jesus at least with a little bit of faith. And so in a world as polarized as ours is today, I think Jairus has something to tell us. I think Jairus reminds us that no people, and no group of people is a monolith. No one is exactly like the subculture in which they find themselves. That every person is unique and every person is different. Not all groups of people are bad, not all groups of people are good. And so Jairus then is part of this group of people who is uh, kind of bad in, in the Gospel of Mark. But Jairus is different because Jairus believes that Jesus can heal his daughter. The text tells us that he implores Christ earnestly. He implores Christ earnestly, believing he can heal his dying daughter. Now, as we note the situation, right, there's a great crowd. Uh, Jesus is walking. Jairus comes to him. Jairus says, Jesus, my daughter is ill. I believe that you can heal her. And so they're making their way uh, downtown, walking fast, and they're homebound. Anyone catch that song? That's pretty good. So they're making their way downtown, um, and they're going together toward Jairus's daughter. Uh, but look with me at the end of verse 24. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him, and thronged about him. And the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Uh-oh, we've got places to be, but this great crowd is getting in our way. And literally in my notes, I have, should I tell this story? I'm going to. Just don't report me to the authorities. I um, have gotten much better uh, at handling sort of distractions in my life, mainly because in ministry, you will find that you sit down to study Greek and then the whole world falls apart and you have to go attend to it. And so you very rarely get um, a whole lot of um, focus in one thing before you have to go do something else. I wasn't always sort of as um, okay with distractions in my life. I remember one particular day, um, my friend Jason and I, uh, not Troutwine, Cuffy, were headed to a WVU game. WVU was playing Marshall and in Huntington, one of the only times that we played there. And uh, Jason was being recruited by Marshall to play uh, football and basketball. And so we were going after practice one day to go and watch. It was a Friday night game for whatever ESPN's reasons. Um, and so Friday, kind of all day I was waiting to go to the game. I was Jason's big guest uh, to go to the game. And uh, I was kind of nervous because you're not supposed to cheer in the recruit section. I did, um, but it is what it is. So the story goes, Jason was in trouble by his coach at football for something, as he always was. And so... Uh, we were late getting out of practice. Well, the game was going to start at like 7, and we didn't get out of Polka until like right on time to get there. And so we are just hauling down 64 West, and I am focused. Like, I'm not going to miss kickoff. I'm not going to miss kickoff. And so if you know Hunting anything about Huntington, like, it's just kind of all a grid. Like, Charleston's got one-way streets and one-way streets, and Huntington's pretty simple. He simply laid out. I didn't know much about Huntington, but I decided I didn't want to be late, and so I kind of um, 
just started driving down alleys, honestly. Like, traffic was backed up, and so I said, you know what? We're just going to figure it out. And so I turned down sort of this alley, and I just drive down it. And we're making our way in the general direction of the football stadium. And then we couldn't find anywhere to park, of course. And so I see there's a no parking sign. But right beside the no parking sign, there's a little space. And I'm like, I think I could park in that space, leaving a space in front of the no parking sign. And so Jason's like, whatever you think, man, it's your car. And so... Um, we pull in, and I'm like, yeah, this is going to work, man. This is going to work great. I have my little uh, um, Toyota Yaris, right, and I'm, I'm getting in that spot. And then someone comes out of the window. I don't know if it was God. I don't know who it was, but he comes out of the window up there, and he's like, can't park there. And I'm like, all right. And so I back up, and I hit in reverse, and I hear, boom! I backed into a car. Um, but the game was about to start. So I took off. And uh, I was like, Jason, did we hit that car? He went, no, we're good. And so we take off, and as I kind of look in the mirror, I see a big dent in the car. Um, I was so focused, right, on where I was going, I didn't care that I had just hit someone's car, right? I, I wasn't sort of in a place where I was uh, humble enough to stop. Uh, the backstory that is not relevant to the rest of the sermon is I paid for that uh, with a big prank by one of my teachers who told me I was getting arrested, and uh, that the cops were there, and I almost had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> But I think, I think we kind of go through our lives like that. That's why I tell the story, right? I think we're kind of fixated and focused on, on somewhere we have to go. And that anything that happens, even if it's significant or not, can, can sometimes be sort of a, a distraction or a detraction of, of where we think we're going. In the modern day, we all sort of think that we are the, uh, what's the poem say? We are the captain of our fate and we are the master of our destiny, right? That is just hogwash. That, that's absolutely not true. We live with this illusion of control over every aspect of our lives, but interruptions remind us that that's not the case. Interruptions remind us that we aren't in control of our everyday lives. Interruptions remind us that God's plan for our day isn't always our plan for our day. And so I put myself in J. Iris's shoes. I'm going somewhere far more important than the WVU football game. I'm going to find my dying daughter, right? And there's a great crowd of people, and I'm walking with Jesus, and Jesus is our only ticket to, like, healing our daughter. And so I'm walking with Christ, and there's this great crowd of people, and there's got to be a one-track mind. I've got to get there. I've got to get to my daughter. We've got to get there as quickly as possible. And that Jesus would stop, that there would be an interruption along the way, seems counterintuitive. It seems unhelpful. But there is much that God has to teach us about himself in the interruptions of our lives. I believe there's much God has to teach us about ourselves in this particular interruption as well. Look with me in verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She'd heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Verse 29 is going to begin sort of the next portion uh, when she is healed. I want to note a few things about the woman. First, note that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years, right? Notice the length of her illness. It's not an accident. This number 12 is symbolic anywhere it appears in Scripture. It represents sort of this um, total uh, idea, this idea of totality, right? So she's had this discharge of blood for 12 years that she is uh, totally ill. She is totally desperate. It communicates this idea of total desperation. 
because of her physical uh, ailment, she is ceremonially unclean. And because she is ceremonially unclean, she's been disallowed from the temple. And she's very, very likely unmarried and childless in a culture where it is frowned upon to be unmarried and childless. So first, we note her disease. Second, the text says that she has suffered under many physicians. She has suffered under many physicians. When I first uh, kind of read through this, I don't know, years and years ago, I, I never really noted that word, suffered under physicians. I just kind of assumed, you know, she went to a lot of doctors and things didn't get better. Uh, and we have some great doctors uh, today. Gabe Glantz, we have all kinds of great doctors in our midst who take good care of us in nice, clean hospitals. Um, that wasn't the case in the first century, <laughs> right? So when the text says in the first century that she was suffering under physicians, she was quite literally probably suffering under some physicians. Medicine was rough then, and it's hard to tell the lengths that she had gone to try and heal herself of her disease. So first we notice that she is desperately ill. Second, we notice that she has suffered greatly under many physicians. And then third, we note that she has spent all that she had. I suppose healthcare never has been cheap. You know, we're not unlike this woman because we suffer from an illness with which we are completely unable to reckon. We suffer from the illness of sin. And like the 12 years of her discharge, right, we are in a desperate place ourselves. Our illness is complete. Our illness is total, and there is no signs of it letting up. But like this woman, we suffer from sin, and we have sought our own forms of healing. We've gone to some really bad physicians to heal us from the illness of sin. We have all fled to what we will call this morning pseudo-saviors in our lives. And in these pseudo-saviors, we hope to find relief from pain. In these pseudo-saviors, we hope to find a purpose for life. In these pseudo-saviors, we hope to find something that can take away the problems that we have. These pseudo-saviors, though, always bring more pain than healing. These pseudo-saviors always bring more pain than healing. We've fled to the arms of another. We've fled to uh, a bottle, right? We have fled to money. We have fled to success. We have fled to power. We have fled to education. We have fled to uh, sort of societal um, status. We have fled to all sorts of things, pornography. We have fled to all sorts of things for relief, for comfort, for meaning, for healing, for all of these things. And like this lady who has suffered from an illness, like this lady who has sought healing from really bad physicians, we too have given all that we have. The scriptures teach in Romans, perhaps the most beautiful exposition of the gospel, that we have traded the glory of the creator for created things. That we have traded the glory of the creator for created things. All these things are going against her. Right? She's ill. She's sought healing in places she can't be healed. She's given away all that she has. She has no money. She has nothing. All these things are going against her. One thing, however, is going for her, and that is she has heard about Jesus. Her story, just like our story, hinges on verse 27. Read with me in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, 
I'll be made well. Why does she think, right, that if she touches his clothes, she's going to be made well? Different people have different ideas about it, but I think we're going to see that it's not the actual touching of the garment that makes her well, but it is the faith in Christ she displays that makes her well. Let's look at the miracle together in verses 29 through 34. Verse 29 tells us that immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned it out in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And I, I, this is kind of funny, verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see all these people right around you, <laughs> right? You see all these people pressing in against you? Who touched you? I don't know. Him, 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 her, 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 him, her, him, her, him. I don't know. Which one, Jesus? Which one do you think it was? And once again, the disciples think they're smarter than Jesus, but once again, they certainly are not. Jesus feels, right, something leave him. And there's this interesting moment where all these people are touching him, but yet one person's touch does something that the other people's touch do not do. And I think that teaches us something about Jesus, that Jesus isn't this magic shaman-like figure who walks around and you just touch him and you're healed, right? He's not like, you know, everything he touches turns to gold and he's not this fairy tale figure, but rather he's a very real person. And that to get from Jesus what Jesus has to offer, you have to come with faith, to get from Jesus who Jesus is and what he truly has to offer people like you and me, you have to come not like everyone else who is bumping up against him, but you have to come with intentionality, you have to come with purpose, and you have to come with faith. This lady's knowledge of Christ was not all-encompassing. She was no theologian. She was no scholar. Some commentators even note that she had bad theology, assuming that touching his garment would make her well. She had no reason to think that. But nonetheless, she knew that if Jesus wanted to make her well, that Jesus could make her well. And so she approaches Christ. Christ feels, the text says, uh, something had gone out from him and immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Verse 32, we skipped the disciples. They're driving us crazy, right? Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, right? So the woman immediately understands, I'm healed, right? In a physical way, the bleeding stops, and perhaps she feels different. She feels healed. She realizes that the plan had come together, right? That she had gotten to Jesus and that Jesus had, in fact, healed her. And then her response is incredible. And I don't know if there is a better way to come to God than the way she does right here. What does she do? She came in fear and trembling. She fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. She came in fear and trembling. She fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. Coming in fear and trembling, the woman is admitting with her life, you are far greater than me. I am reckoning with one who is far more powerful than I am. I think one of the great dangers of sort of our great accessibility to the Bible and our great accessibility to um, spiritual truth is that we can grow sort of um, accustomed to the greatness and glory and power of God. That what should um, inspire awe and invoke worship just makes us say, uh, okay, yeah, what's the next thrill in my day? But the woman realizes that she's been healed, and she realizes that she is in the company of one far greater than she is, and she comes to him in fear and trembling. She falls before him. She realizes how small she is, and then she told him the whole truth. 
we are not good at telling the whole truth as a people. You realize how good we are at rationalizing sin, at rationalizing ourselves? It, it is very, very rare that we tell someone the whole truth. But yet, this lady comes to Christ and she tells him the whole truth. I think this is somewhat of a blueprint, not an expansive blueprint, but perhaps an example of one, of how to come to God, to come humbly, and to come honestly. Have you told God the whole truth about you? He knows it anyways, right? Have you confessed your, your sins to him? Have you laid bare your heart before God and before your brothers and sisters? Finally, in verse 34, after she's approached God in such a way, one word, I think, Jesus changes this woman's life forever, and it's how he addresses her, right? It's not as one who is unclean, as outcast, not even as like patient who's now healed, nothing like that. But he says what? Daughter. Daughter. Does he say your touch has made you well? No, he says, daughter, your, your faith. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman was an outsider in every sense of the word. This woman had nothing. She was someone that culture had put sort of outside their, uh, their box. But people who culture puts outside the box, Jesus brings back in the box. Right? It's better to be in the fold of Christ than in the fold of culture any day. This lady goes from insider to outsider. She goes from a sick to healed. But most importantly, she goes from having no hope to hope because she has had an encounter with Christ. So awesome, man. So awesome to see that as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, on his way to heal his daughter, right, that he, that he stops and, and he performs this miracle. And we get this picture that it's just like this triumphant march to glory, right? We're, we're on the way to perform this great miracle. And hey, while I'm at it, let me heal this woman real quick. And I'm going, and then verse 35 comes. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble this teacher any further? And I wonder um, how Jairus feels, right? I'm not a father. I don't have any um, kids, so I can't even speculate on what it would feel like that my daughter has died. But I, I can kind of think about how I could look at Jesus and say, maybe if we didn't stop and heal that bleeding lady, who can live with the blood, by the way, she has for 12 years, right? Maybe if we didn't stop, we'd have, we'd have made it in time that I could have Save my daughter. Or maybe he doesn't feel that way at all. I don't know. It's just speculation. I'm, I'm curious as to what his response was. Nonetheless, we do know that mourning had overtaken his, the daughter, sort of their community, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus looks at him, perhaps, and says, don't fear, only believe Verse 37, he allows no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, which is interesting. We noted how Jesus came, comes on a mission to save the world. We talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. He comes on a mission to save the world, and he has 12 people who follow him everywhere. And really, even you go a step further than that, he has these three people who are with him in these most intimate moments. So he takes these three guys, and he brings them with him. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion 
people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. We'll read verse 42 in a moment. Right, your daughter's dead. This is the pronouncement that J. Iris gets. Then Jesus looks at him and says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Only believe. And I, I, I don't know how Jairus responds there. We know Jesus keeps going with him, right? So we know it's not totally, you know what, be quiet, you know, this, that, and the other, get away. We failed. It's over. We know that at least Jairus is agreeable enough to bring Jesus on with him and to continue their uh, walk to the house. Jesus grabs Peter and James and John, and they come in with him. The morning is well underway, and Jesus comes with a message of life where there is nothing but death. Jesus sort of interrupts this funeral in a way that only he can do, and he tells them that this child's not dead, she's sleeping. Well, they would know if she were actually sleeping. They would know if she were actually dead. You don't want to pronounce someone dead if, in fact, they are not dead. He says she's going to be okay, in essence, and they what? They laugh at him. Because they don't see what he sees. They don't see what he sees. And here's a good reminder for all of us. We're far more like the crowd than we are like Jesus. Because we don't see what he sees. We don't always see the purpose he has in what he does. When we look around us and see death, we're the last ones to see life. And I think there's an encouragement to us when we walk into our workplaces tomorrow, right? And people around us don't know Jesus, and they're struggling with all sorts of sins, and they're maybe even mocking you for, for being a Christian. Um, there's hope there. Because when you walk into all that death, Jesus doesn't only see what is, but he sees what can be. When we look at our city, right, uh, a difficult place to live in the world's standards, right, a dangerous place to live in the world's eyes, particularly over these last month or so. Uh, we've seen a high sort of rise in, in crime. People leave town, right? Or um, maybe the people around us don't, aren't interested in the gospel. Now, this text gives me hope that sometimes when I walk around and when all I can see is death, Jesus can see where life is about to be reborn. They laugh at him. They don't see it. He says, Talitha Kumi, sometimes Mark keeps the Aramaic like that, and he will uh, at the cross, right? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. To sort of reiterate the eyewitness nature of the account, that this is not a transliteration, but this is in fact what he said, right? Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And then verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was how old? She was 12 years old. Whether you're 12 years bleeding or 12 years in dead, Jesus can bring healing wherever you are. And they were immediately, the text says, overcome with amazement. Verse 43 is probably my favorite verse in the whole chapter. One of my favorite in the book because it's so funny. He says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and to give her something to eat. If we ever needed proof that Jesus was a Baptist... We just got, hey, no one tell anybody about what happened right here because my time has not yet come. That was these spiritual messianic reasons. Also, she's probably pretty hungry, so get her something to eat. She's been dead. Now she's alive, you know. And so um, I think it's just a really, really cool moment where Jesus 
I think tarries on purpose. Because in the economy of Christ, it's not either the lady bleeding or the person dead. It's both the lady bleeding and the person dead. He's making a point. He tarries on purpose. If Jesus wanted to get there before she died, he would have gotten there before she died. But Jesus is reminding us that however bleak a situation gets, he alone can change it. Jesus allows this lady to die, this girl to die, because he's going to show everyone that he is, in fact, the Lord of death. That part of his mission, in fact, at the very heart of his mission, is that he has come that death may no longer reign. Uh, worship team, if you guys would like to uh, lead us to the table uh, and partake of the uh, body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us, uh, we'll follow you in just a moment. Again, chapter 5, as you study this week in your discipleship groups, the first uh, 20 verses we didn't even deal with, but there is a lot that could be unpacked there as Jesus encounters this man with a demon. Then we see Jesus interacting with a woman who was quite ill, and then finally a child who is quite dead. I mentioned in the introduction that, that some of you are um, bound by, by sin. You're bound spiritually in some way, and I, I want you to know today that Jesus can do what no one else can. Others of you are discouraged. You're just kind of down. You might feel fine, right? You've learned to cope with it in your daily life. But you realize that spiritually, maybe you've been a Christian for some time or been interested in being a Christian for some time, but you know, it's, it's been pretty stagnant, right? You've read some books. You've showed up at some services. You've walked some aisles. You've filled out some cards. You have gone to some camps. God help those camps. You have done a lot of things to try and, and get better, but perhaps you never have. You can be wrong a thousand times, but it only takes one interaction with Jesus to change you forever. Or maybe you're spiritually dead. And what I mean by that is, not that you're terrible, right? You're the worst person in the room. Uh, that's definitely Nick. Um, it's probably Cedar, if I'm honest. You know what I'm saying? Little kids, little kids, something, man. Sweetest kid. Uh, I don't mean that you're the worst person. I don't mean that you're beyond help, right? I don't mean that you are um, necessarily as bad as you can be. It's just you're spiritually dead, right? There's no walk with Christ. There's no, uh, you don't love the things that God loves. You don't You've not repented of your sin. You love your sin more than you love God. It's, it's just pretty cut and dry. This morning, I, I want to encourage you and remind you that, that Jesus brings life from death. And that Jesus can give you a new heart. And that you can begin to love holiness. You can begin to repent of sin.